The Code of the Worcesters by P.G. Woodhouse. Code of the Worcesters features one of the greatest duos in the whole of humorous fiction, Jeeves and Worcester. Bertie Worcester is a dim, well-meaning, extremely pleasant gentleman about London town, and his wise, calm, sagacious gentleman's personal gentleman, his butler, his valet, Jeeves. We don't know whether Jeeves has a first name or not, but Jeeves he always was. Bertie keeps getting himself into scrapes, and Jeeves keeps getting him out of scrapes. Jeeves is also very, very interested in keeping Bertie's somewhat wayward sartorial standards up to snuff. And the Code of the Worcesters uh, very much follows this path. Bertie is forced, strong-armed by his Aunt Dahlia, to go to an English country house and there to steal a silver cow creamer so that Aunt Dahlia's husband can complete his silver collection. What, I hear you ask, is a cow creamer? I will leave it to Bertie Worcester to explain it to you. Quote, It was a silver cow. When I say cow, don't go running away with the idea of some decent self-respecting cudster, such as you may observe loading grass into itself in the nearest meadow. This was a sinister, leering, underworld sort of animal, the kind that would spit out the side of its mouth for twopence. It was about four inches high and six long. Its back opened on a hinge. Its tail was arched so that the tip touched the spine, thus, I suppose, affording a handle for the cream lover to grasp. The sight of it seemed to take me into a different and dreadful world. Obviously, the plot to steal the cow creamer goes horribly wrong, leading Bertie into all kinds of horrible scrapes that it does require Jeeves to get him out of. And one of the geniuses of Woodhouse's writing is the way he draws characters. Now, one of the characters in this book is a lady called Madeline Bassett, whom Bertie ends up becoming accidentally engaged to on a couple of occasions, um, an imbroglio that Jeeves manages to extract him from on both occasions. And here is Woodhouse's beautiful pen portrait of Madeline Bassett, quote, For Madeline was undeniably of attractive exterior, slim, svelte if that's the word, and bountifully equipped with golden hair and all the fixings. But where the casual observer would have been making his bloomer was in overlooking that squashy soupiness of hers, that subtle air she had of being on the point of talking baby talk. It was that that froze the blood. She was definitely the sort of girl who puts her hands over her husband's eyes as he is crawling into breakfast with the morning head and says, Guess who? I think that tells you all you need to know about Madeleine Bassett. There are a couple of other corking characters in this book as well. One of them is Roderick Spode, who is the leader of the the Black Shorts, which is a take on Oswald Mosley's fascist group of Great Britain. Um, and it turns out he has a dark secret in that uh, under the pseudonym Eulalie Sirs, he designs ladies' underwear, which is as close to risque as P.G. Woodhouse ever gets. But the bit that I really wanted to delight you with in this podcast involves the village constable P.C. Oates, a terrier, a bicycle, and a pond. We're well into the plot by now, and Bertie is firmly in the soup, as he would say, so he goes out for an evening walk to uh, relieve his spirit. Quote, I was still musing in a sombre and apprehensive vein when my meditations were interrupted. A human drama was developing on the road in front of me. The shades of evening were beginning to fall pretty freely by now, but the visibility was still good enough to enable me to observe that up the road there was approaching a large, stout, moon-faced policeman on a bicycle, and he was one could see at peace with the world. His daily round of tasks may or may not have been completed, but he was obviously off duty for the moment, and his whole attitude was that of a policeman with nothing on his mind but his helmet. 
Well, when I tell you that he was riding without his hands, you will gather to what lengths the careless gaiety of this serene slop had spread. And where the drama came in was that it was patent that his attention had not yet been drawn to the fact that he was being chivied in the strong, silent, earnest manner characteristic of that breed by a fine Aberdeen terrier. There he was, riding comfortably along, sniffing the fragrant evening breeze, and there was the Scotty, all whiskers and eyebrows, herring after him, hell for leather. As Jeeves said later when I described the scene to him, the whole situation resembled some great moment in a Greek tragedy, where someone is stepping high, wide and handsome, quite unconscious that all the while Nemesis is at his heels. And he may be right. The constable, I say, was riding along without his hands. But for this, the disaster, when it happened, might not have been so complete. I was a bit of a cyclist myself in my youth. I think I've mentioned I once won a choir boy's handicap at some village sport. And I can testify that when you are riding without your hands, privacy and complete freedom from interruption are of the essence. The mere suggestion of an unexpected Scotty connecting with your ankle bone at such a time, and you swoop into a sudden swerve. And, as everybody knows, if the hands are not firmly on the handlebars, a sudden swerve spells a smeller. And so it happened now. A smeller, among the finest I've ever been privileged to witness, was what this officer of the law came. One moment he was with us all merry and bright. The next he was in the ditch, a sort of massadouin of arms and legs and wheels, with the terrier standing on the edge, looking down at him with that rather offensive expression of virtuous smugness, which I've often noticed on the faces of Aberdeen terriers in their clashes with humanity. As he threshed about in the ditch, endeavouring endeavoring to untangle himself, a girl came around the corner, an attractive young prune, upholstered in heather mixed tweeds, and I recognised the familiar features of Stiffy Bing. After what Gussie had said, of course, I ought to have been expecting Stiffy. Seeing an Aberdeen terrier, I should have gathered that it belonged to her. I might have said to myself, if Scotty's come, can Stiffy be far behind? Stiffy was plainly vexed with the policeman. You could see it in her manner. She hooked the crook of her stick over the Scotty's collar and drew him back, then addressed herself to the man, who had now begun to emerge from the ditch like Venus rising from the foam. "'What on earth,' she demanded, "'did you do that for?' Code of the Worcesters was published in 1938, shortly before the outbreak of World War II. By 1940, P.G. Woodhouse was living in France, and when the Germans invaded, he was arrested and interned at Le Touquet, uh, had some thoroughly unpleasant experiences at the hands of the Gestapo, and then was freed in Berlin, where he was persuaded to record a few radio broadcasts from Germany to the USA, who, of course, at that point were not in the war. As a result of that, he became distinctly persona non grata in England. There were calls for his prosecution. And after the war in 1947, he emigrated to the USA and uh, never came back to the UK for any length of time. Britain was very, very unkind to one of its greatest literary figures. I mean, his his writing was very lighthearted, very comedic, but terrific writing nonetheless. If you haven't got that from the three excerpts I've read out for you today, well, possibly you need to be on a register. As he approached the end of his life, there were calls for politicians to make good P.G. Woodhouse's reputation. I mean, it was widely believed that, and he said himself, that it was foolish of him to broadcast from a German radio station to America during the Second World War. And anybody that knew him could not have accused him of anything other than naivety. I mean, in this very book, he has a character who is the leader of the British fascists who has a side gig designing ladies' underwear and at one point in the play is thoughtfully sucking on the barrel of a shotgun. 
towards the end of his life, um, some politicians suggested that he should be given a knighthood as a make good, but the good old British state uh, quashed it. And and the writer and essayist Evelyn Waugh said of the final prime minister who denied P.G. Woodhouse his knighthood that when that prime minister died, he, Evelyn Waugh, would like to go and dance and urinate on that prime minister's grave. Good for him. P.G. Woodhouse wrote more than 100 books. I think I've read all of them. Um, I would heartily recommend the Blandings Castle books, where you meet Uncle Fred, the Earl of Emsworth, and his silver medal winning pig. Any of the Jeeves and Worcester books are absolutely superb. And I would particularly recommend the Smith books. Leave it to Smith, Smith Journalist, and Smith in the City. They are among the most profound and funniest books that he ever wrote. If your taste is rather, if you'd rather watch your P.G. Woodhouse, Jeeves and Worcester has been turned into a superb television series. And I don't say this lightly because I dislike seeing my literary characters, my literary heroes on screen because TV never gets it right. But the closest to the perfect representation of Jeeves and Worcester is the series with Stephen Fry as Jeeves and Hugh Laurie as Worcester. They are absolutely wonderful. Of course, it's not as rich and detailed as the books, but I really can recommend watching it. But if you really want the full P.G. Woodhouse experience, if you really want the featherbrain daftness of Bertie Wooster and the wry sagaciousness of Jeeves, I really do recommend that you read the books by P.G. Woodhouse. This is a Value for Value podcast. If you listen carefully, you'll have heard no adverts interrupting my Northern English attempts to be a posh London chap about town. I made no recommendations about your choice of undercrackers. I didn't recommend you to my gold dealer because I don't have one. No. If you like these quirky daily snippets of the greatness that is English literature, if these podcasts give you any value, then send it back to me in the holy value trinity of time, talent and treasure. Time and talent? Well, make some suggestions for things you'd like to read in my fine northern English baritone. Help me improve this rather raw podcast. Treasure? How much value do you get from the smile as an Aberdeen terrier hits the village policeman rashly riding hands-free and sends him into a ditch? And from there, if you start reading P.G. Woodhouse and the joy it will, I guarantee, bring. What's that discovery worth? Put it in the figure and send it this way to PayPal at dailyclassic at proton.me, where you can also give me feedback, suggestions or advice. After I've eaten enough fish... Bertie Worcester says the reason Jeeves is so clever that he practically lives on fish. I shall get this whole streaming sets thing sorted out. In the meantime, go to podcastindex.org and get yourself a modern podcast app. Go on. It's what Jeeves would do. And call back in tomorrow. There'll be another daily classic.